1: The Treasury Department sent a survey to primary de- uh, dealers asking very detailed, asking for very detailed responses to whether investors would have an appetite for 40, 50 or even 100 year U.S. treasuries. Now, how realistic is the potential for this ultra long dated bond issuance by the U.S.? I want to bring in Michael Clardy. He's head of U.S. interest rate strategy at RBC Capital Markets in New York. Uh, Michael, can you give us a sense before we dig into what the Treasury Department is looking for and how feasible this would be. Do you feel like this latest survey signals that the Treasury Department is much more serious about ultra-long dated bond issuance now than they have been in the past?
2: Right. This is an issue that's been out there for a while, but the, the specific nature of these questions does make it feel like we've moved a little bit closer um, to the decision on this. So greater odds uh, that we do get an ultra-long bond.
1: So, let's talk about what they were looking for. They want to know the appetite by investors, but also uh, the primary dealers have to play a pretty big role in whether this happens or not, right?
2: Right. So, I think the biggest challenge with an ultra-long is going to be, how do you issue it? The problem for the U.S. is that we have a lot of debt outstanding already. We've got $14 trillion of debt outstanding. And if you look, there's lots of countries around the world that issue ultra-long bonds. But they all have much smaller amounts of debt outstanding. So what they can do is they can be tactical. They can they can wait until they know there's demand for the bond, issue some into those periods of strong demand, and then not issue when there's weak demand. That works great if you only have, you know, a trillion dollars of debt outstanding. When you've got 14, to be a relevant part of your overall debt profile, you have to issue a lot of these ultra-long bonds which means that you can't be tactical. You have to issue every quarter regardless of market conditions. That makes the the issuance process highly risky.
1: How big would this ultra-long portion of the market have to be to be relevant?
2: I I mean, I think if you're at anything less than – you eventually want to get it up to sort of 5% at least. Otherwise, it's a bit of a waste of time.
0: Five percent. That's, that's a lot of bonds. That is a lot of a lot of bonds. Is there an Michael? Is there an alternative way uh, to achieve the same thing, which is to try to lower or keep the cost of funding the government low?
2: With sorry, with the with the ultra bond. Um, no,
0: with other with what exists currently.
2: Right. So I mean, one of the one of the other questions with the ultra bond is if you issue a fifty year bond, do you bring brand new buyers of
3: treasury debt,
2: or are you simply going to cannibalize people who would have bought 30s and have them buy 50s instead. Um, I think, you know, you would see a lot of cannibalization. So the other alternative, if, if they want to extend the average 30, is just to issue more 30s.
0: Issue more 30s, or is it possible to disconnect, let's say, the principal payment from the interest payment on treasuries?
2: You could. So you could issue what that's called is a, a strip. So you've stripped away the coupons from the principal payment, that you actually, I think, see a lot of demand um, for those zero coupon long bonds. The one challenge of that is they don't raise a lot of money for the treasury. So if I'm selling today a principal strip that, um, you know, I, I don't get paid on for 30 years or 50 years, um, the value of that strip is is very low. Um, so I'm not, by selling it today, I'm not bringing in a lot of money.
1: No, I was just going to say, I, I, you know, I, I really was struck by this survey, the reason being that Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin, who's just getting his feet wet at this point, uh, he doesn't have all of the boots on the ground in the Treasury Department, that this is one of the, the initial moves is to really show that he's serious about looking into this ultra long dated issuance. I mean, do you think from an efficiency standpoint, from a financing standpoint, that it would actually... Help the United States lower their borrowing costs over a longer period.
2: No. Um, if you look the the Treasury has this borrowing advisor committee. Um, it's a group of different uh, both sell side and uh, buy side, the investor base for their bonds. Um, they put out a study uh, in uh, last back in February, where they basically said, if we look at, if we if you look at, The last 50 years, at times when rates were rising, you saved a tiny bit of money by issuing longer than normal. But when rates are falling, issuing longer than normal costs you a ton of money. So it's a very asymmetrical savings versus uh, cost of the government. That's because normally there's a thing, a a risk premium, a term premium. By issuing a very long bond, the buyer of that has a little more interest rate risk than if they bought something short. Um, so normally you have to pay that buyer for taking that risk. Um, Over long horizons, this tends to be costly. Now, issuing today might, you know, if they sort of small out today, it might save a little bit of money, but again, the Treasury, where we have so much debt outstanding um, to, to really be important for the financing cost, you'd have to issue a real lot today.
0: I want to thank you very much for your thoughts. Michael Clarity is the head of U.S. Interest Rate Strategy at RBC Capital Markets, speaking about Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin's uh, comments about ultra-long U.S. Treasury bonds.
1: Right now, we want to turn to uh, IPOs. Different asset class, but equally important, I must admit. Uh, I want to bring in Sandy Miller, General Partner at IVP, the leader in tech IPOs. He has done arguably more IPOs for tech companies than anyone else. And uh, Sandy, I want to talk to you a little bit about, about your projection that this year we're going to see uh, a really dramatic number of technology companies come to market with initial public offerings. Can you explain why, how many you expect, and, you know, what the demand is like for it.
3: Sure. I think it's going to be a robust year. It's hard to know the exact number, but I think we could see. Now I'm thinking here uh, primarily of tech IPOs, which is my area of focus. But I think we're going to see you know, in the range of 30 to 50 uh, IPOs this year. We're, we're off to a good start in the year. Uh, it reflects a lot of pent-up demand because we've had a very, very light IPO calendar, again, for tech IPOs in the last three years, despite the fact that the stock market's been in a good place and there's so many great companies. So, the buyers are there Obviously, institutional buyers like IPOs—the source of alpha. Uh, The deals have been working. Tech IPOs are up twenty-five percent on average last year. They're doing about the same so far this year. Uh, And people want new names. You know, half the there's only half as many listed companies as there were twenty years ago. Uh, So the buyers are there, and then the companies are there because uh, there's more. Really strong tech companies, privately held still, of scale—call it fifty million, hundred million, two hundred million dollars—and growing than we've ever had before. In part because, of course, there haven't been very many IPOs to take them out. So I think uh, the deals have been working well. The companies are ready. A lot of deals are on file already. Well, fortunately, the Jobs Act has allowed the silent filing, which has been a, a terrific uh, uh, thing for the sector. And uh, you know, there's there's probably upwards of of uh, you know, uh, more, certainly more than twenty-five, maybe more than fifty. Uh, we don't know for sure. Uh, companies that have filed, tech companies that have filed silently, uh, looking for IPOs that will come uh, both this year and next year. So,
1: Sandy, you talked a little bit about the dearth of IPOs and how the number of publicly listed companies has declined pretty dramatically. This is the source of quite a bit of hand wringing, and, and the tech industry is a perfect example. People are saying that there are these companies that have grown to be the size where they would have otherwise had an IPO for a long time earlier, but they've been able to raise so much money from venture capitalists and in the debt markets that they haven't had to. Can you explain why these tech companies have waited so long?
3: Well, I think uh, there has has been private financing available for tech companies, primarily from equity rather than debt. Um, And the companies also have felt it was an easier road because they – they didn't have the public scrutiny, and they could do, take the hard decisions that sometimes you have to make about you know, business shifts and so on that are tougher to do in a public environment. But I think it was the availability of the private capital that allowed them to really do that. Uh, the private capital is still there today, but the valuations today are better in the public market. Than they are in the private market and and uh so again, and I think ultimately companies recognize they're going to need uh, need the liquidity of going public and also the brand. Uh, building awareness uh, that, a, that a public offering brings. So especially venture-backed companies need to find an exit, and the IPO has typically been the best exit, in, in part because it can, it can fuel M&A. Uh, we saw that with one of our companies, App Dynamics, a really strong company that was uh, poised to do a, a really successful IPO, and then at the last minute Cisco came in and bought the company for a, a big premium. I think we'll see more of that as well because the IPOs actually catalyze more M&A activity.
0: Sandy, is Snap considered a success?
3: Absolutely. The uh, the, uh, the company. I mean, it, we, as whether something is a long run success will only be determined in the long run. But I think the IPO. If uh, I assume that's your question, I think the IPO is very much a success. The uh, uh, priced you know range revised up, priced above the range, trading above the range. There's always volatility in these names, especially with companies that are super high profile. Uh, still in a position where they're not you know, profitable companies, uh, there's there's just more volatility around them. And I think we'll see a fair amount of volatility in the sector, but uh, overall a very, very strong year for IPOs and also in the next year.
1: Sandy, you noted that valuations are better today in the public market than the private market. Can you elaborate a little bit?
3: Yeah. What I mean by valuations, I mean multiples because, of course, there's some Private, you know, that, that are multiples reflecting the growth rates of companies, but the uh, uh, that's the normal environment. Normally, private companies are priced at some discount to publicly public comparables, uh, growth adjusted. But we did go through a period in 2014 and 2015, particularly, where that simply wasn't the case, and the the private company multiples were actually higher and public company multiples. That's an anomaly. Um, And it was sure to correct, and it has corrected. It's not a weak private market. We're still a robust private market. There's money available for for good companies. There's good prices, but it's more balanced. And that's making the public market um, look more attractive to companies um, that uh, we're kind of trying to choose between the private and the public market.
0: Thank you. Sandy Miller is the general partner of Institutional Venture Partners based in San Francisco, speaking about the potential torrent of technology initial public offerings coming this year. We want to take a moment to let you know about something new from Bloomberg. Starting right now, you can use our iOS app or our new Google Chrome extension to scan any news story on any website, instantly revealing relevant news and market data from Bloomberg and other sources related to companies and people you're reading about. So no matter where you're reading the news, you can bring the power of Bloomberg's news and data with you. It's pretty amazing. Download our iOS app or search for the Bloomberg extension on the Chrome store to try it out. Learn more at Bloomberg.com Lens. The afternoon attack in Paris yesterday killed a policeman and has further aggravated the situation in France as the country goes to the polls this weekend. Here to tell us more is Irene Finel Honigman, adjunct professor of international affairs at Columbia University. Irene, thank you for being with us. Uh, let's get your impressions first of what this means for the election in France. <laughs>
4: Well, I think uh, this clearly created an additional shock, as we now know that the perpetrator was an Islamist terrorist, again, who actually was even known to the police, uh, and maybe affiliated with what happened in Marseille a few days ago. Uh, The real concern is whether this will harden or even increase Marine Le Pen, the extreme right-wing candidate support. She's supposed to have about 24, 25 percent, almost matched with the centrist Macron. Her support may increase. Um, However, the question is whether at the end of the day this may not also actually help the former Prime Minister François Fillon, whose support was eroding because of scandals, but who may look as if he is a more sound and experienced uh, type of politician able to basically take away some of Marine Le Pen's support and still present a very strong pro-security, yet at the same time solid economic program. So right now this has made a volatile situation, even more volatile and very concerning.
1: Well, uh, Irene, can we get any sense of how it is being received by voters, by how uh, this news is being covered by the French media?
4: Well, I think happened uh, so quickly. And the thing that was very dramatic was it actually occurred during the last presidential debate, which was taking place uh, last night when it occurred. And so they were very, very quickly responding. Uh, French, uh, the campaign has been suspended today. And in a way, this may sort of perhaps calm things a little bit down. Uh, right now, the media seems to be responding in France almost hour by hour as more information is coming in. The candidates are not making any statements Except for the extreme left-wing communist candidate, Mélenchon, who said he will continue to give uh, speeches and rally his uh, supporters, which may actually work against him and may be seen as exactly the wrong response. Uh, So this is kind of where we're at. Uh, The French press is, again, sort of a little bit all over the place right now. Difficult to know uh, exactly how this is. Definitely, this is good, unfortunately, for Marine Le Pen. We knew that she would make it through the first round. She may make it now with support that actually increases. The question is, does Filon, or does the new young centrist candidate, Emmanuel Macron, uh, who was supposed to have about 24 percent, which one of those two really make it into the uh, Uh, into the contention with uh, Marine Le Pen. That is really going to be the big question now. We don't know at this point.
0: Irene, does it matter who wins the election because the French parliamentary system is such that perhaps the power of the president would be limited to, let's say, move forward with changes to the French uh, participation in the European Union?
4: Well, I think, um, in a way, in part, fortunately and unfortunately, actually, the French presidency is quite a bit stronger uh, than the, uh, re- the system, which is much more faction-based in other uh, European countries. So the powers of the president are fairly uh, large in France. It's also the president who would clearly be picking his cabinet, his prime minister. Uh, if it was Marine Le Pen, because of her really dangerous and incoherent economic program, it would also immediately create a huge shock on the markets and a huge shock on what would be seen as the future of France, the future of the European Union at that point. Uh, so I think it does make an enormous difference uh, even before we start to look at the more complex uh, makeup of the, of the parliamentary groupings.
1: Irene, uh, you, know, you mentioned that the attack happened during the presidential debate. Was that intentional?
4: We don't know. Uh, you know, I I think uh, the 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 horrible thing is that at this point it seems that a lot of these attacks may be uh, very much premeditated, orchestrated. Uh, it seems that information is coming out very quickly. Hard to know. May very well be the case because the uh, attack that was actually aborted in Marseille was the purpose of it was presumably to disrupt the presidential election. Um, so this this may have some link.
0: Irene, uh, the uh, election. Uh, the first round takes place uh, on Sunday. Yes. And then the second round is May 7th. Yes. Do you know if the European Union has any plan for response if Marine Le Pen and the far-left candidate uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon actually make it to that May 7th runoff?
4: I, I am not uh, sure at this point. I, I think actually uh, everyone sort of is, is just uh, kind of holding their breath. Uh, And doesn't want in any way to step in. The problem is that any comments or remarks or statements coming out of the European Union may, in fact, only worsen uh, the anti-EU approach that Marine Le Pen already has. It may just increase support. Uh, and she'll certainly play on that. So I think uh, everyone will try to stay as far away as possible. That's why it was even a little bit disturbing that Obama decided to call the, uh, the centrist candidate right. McCollum. This was not necessary yesterday, right. uh, because uh, one of the issues is McCollum is often already accused of being a little bit perhaps too pro-American, too right. cosmopolitan. This so doesn't this... help. Oh, well, so, thank I'll... you.
1: I, we really, we, we, unfortunately, we have to leave it there. Thank you so much for your comments, Professor Irene Finelhanigman. She's adjunct professor of International Affairs at Columbia University, uh, based in New York City, talking about the attack in Paris and the ripple effects into the ongoing election.
0: Well, let me be the first to wish you a happy Earth Day. It's a little bit premature, but tomorrow is Earth Day. It is celebrated worldwide. It was first celebrated in 1970. And uh, one of the questions that comes up is, why is the United States so far behind when it comes to recycling materials? Here to tell us and give us more information about Earth Day is Jim Fish. He is the chief executive of waste management. Jim, thanks very much for, for coming in. I was looking up some statistics, and it turns out that in the United States... We've got low landfill fees, plus we've got a fragmented waste management system, and that just puts our rate at recycling at, like, 34%. That seems very low.
5: You know, I think it's. I think it, you're right. I think it is lower than we'd like, and part of our objective is to try and get people to truly recycle more. I mean and, – and that sounds a little cliche, but what I mean by that is put every plastic bottle, put every piece of cardboard and, and mixed paper, put every can in your recycle bin – uh, unfortunately our model is one that encourages people to also put in addition to recycling and recycled materials put trash because it's a it's a you have a bin that basically collects everything and and so there's an education process that's required of us to let people know that that your garden hose and your Christmas lights and your garden rake it is kind of seasonal by the way those things don't necessarily go through a recycle plant
1: so how does your company deal with those? garbage items that get mixed up with the recycling
5: well it ends up coming up a big conveyor belt and then it gets either hand or machine separated and that that garden hose hopefully the garden hose doesn't wrap around the wheel and shut down the entire plant which does happen but a lot of that material the garden rake tends to get typically gets pulled off manually and goes into the trash and so when we think about what's what's recycled uh, we've got to make sure that that what's recycled truly becomes something else. That's the definition of recycling is that you take a plastic bottle and turn it into another plastic bottle or some other use.
1: So, well, let's talk about that. So when you talk about recycling, when you talk about the 35 percent rate that Pim just cited, does that mean that sort of people effectively sort 35 percent of their garbage or does it mean that 35 percent of the garbage is taken and then replaced? Re- reprocessed into something else that can be used uh,
5: it 's really the latter I mean it, you know people really? look at diversion and and diversion means that the first step away from the curb is someplace other than a landfill so if i If I take one hundred percent of my material at my house and put it into my recycle bin then then I have diverted one hundred percent of my material by that definition. Unfortunately, what happens is when it gets to the recycle plant, half of it, if that's how much of my trash uh, or my recycle bin is trash, half of it ends up ultimately going to a landfill anyway. And our goal is to make sure that people understand that the goal is not to divert 100%. The goal is to recycle 100%. And that means turn that into something of use on the back end, not just send it to a recycle plant so that they can pull that garden rake out and ultimately send that garden rake to a landfill. Are the recycling plants that currently exist are they
0: antiquated?
5: No, they're not. Uh, the recycle plants that we have are are have new technology. We're refreshing that technology as we go. We're putting things like optical sorters in that that read the types of plastic coming up that that conveyor belt. But there is a lot of material that comes up the conveyor belt and and it ranges from things like those garden hoses to bowling balls and 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 really everything under the sun. So uh, there is There are some some components of that process that haven't changed in 20 years, but it is uh, there is a lot of technology being brought to the,
0: the, the reason The reason I bring that up is because I know that major corporations such as Coca-Cola and Walmart, I mean, they have all pledged to add more recycled material to their packaging. But the companies say that they struggle to find the actual material and that supply is actually a problem.
5: You know, I I can't speak to whether supply is a problem for those folks. We're not on that end. We do provide. We're the biggest recycler in North America, so we have a lot of supply coming out of our plants. Uh, honestly, a lot of it goes to China. Almost almost a hundred percent of our newsprint goes to China because they're the only buyer of that newsprint. Probably sixty percent of mixed paper goes to China, and about thirty percent of cardboard goes to China and and so hence the volatility by the way in in pricing when 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 one customer controls that big a percentage if they decide not to buy, as they have recently with newsprint, the price really can can uh, can be volatile.
1: How much more expensive is it for a municipality to recycle versus just uh, directing its waste to a landfill?
5: Well, in theory, the theory has always been that you can provide recycling for a nominal ch- a nominal charge, and then the recycler makes money on the back end. So when when that uh, material goes through the the plant. We make money when we sell the plastics on the back end or the cardboards on the back end, but uh, you've got to be careful with that formula, because if prices are in are in a a, uh, a kind of at all time lows, and we're sharing a piece of 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 the uh, the back end sales, and yet our cost to process is higher than the commodity price. Uh, you can end up in a, in a position where the recycler is not making any money. And so we, we've changed the model a bit over the last 12 months.
1: Oh, so to the municipality paying a little bit more.
5: Right, exactly. I mean, we want them to share on the upside when things are good, as they are right now. And on the downside, when, when prices are low, then, then we shouldn't pay a rebate when the price is, is below our cost.
1: What form is the plastic and the paper in when you sell it?
5: Well, it's bailed. I mean, we, we, and we separate the plastics into different types. A, a, a big Tide bottle is is a different type of plastic than, than a plastic Dasani water bottle, for example. So, so we separate those plastics. Uh, some are, are lower value. The high-value plastics uh, tend to be those Dasani water bottles, and those are, are fantastic for us. And, and so we bale those and and send them on to, to someone who's going to use them and recycle them.
0: Are there other countries that are better at recycling, and what can we learn?
5: well it 's a great question. There are countries that are better at it. I, I would tell you that that when we 've all been to europe and and when you go to europe they they don 't have what we use today is as single stream recycling so single stream means everything goes in one bin and then we separate it typically in europe they they we call them dual stream and they source separate everything so so when you go to a house in in Germany. They separate their own glass from their plastics, from their from their aluminum's and papers, and then it's picked up separately. So you can imagine that that stream is much cleaner. Uh, you know, when you get today, glass. Would that
0: benefit the United States? I mean, if we were able to adopt it at a municipal it, level.
5: It, you know, the theory was that we would do that single stream would enable people to recycle more, and because now they don't have to separate it, they don't have to go through their own. Uh, you know, do their own work that will separate it for them. That was the theory behind single stream, and I think to some extent that has helped. Uh, you know, increase the amount of of recycled material, but it's also increased the amount of trash that people put in. And I think the the answer to that is a better education process, so people really understand that this commodity, this that this garden hose, is not recyclable, whereas the plastic bottle is.
1: Jim Fish, thank you so much for joining us. Jim Fish is president of Waste Management, which is based in Houston, Texas, and focuses on recycling materials such as plastic, those Dasani water bottles, which are high-quality plastic, uh, as well as other things, but not your garden hose. So don't put it in because it'll clog up their systems. That seems to be the message. Uh, He joins us today on Earth Day, uh, where we look for ways to make sure that our Earth stays beautiful.